0: Our scripture reading comes from Luke chapter 11, verses 37 to 54, and you can follow along as as I read it. While Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him, so he went in and reclined at table. The Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. And the Lord said to him, now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish. But inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You fools, did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give as alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. But woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves, and people walk over them without knowing it. One of the lawyers answered him, Teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also. And he said, Woe to you, lawyers, also, for you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. So you are witnesses, and you consent to the deeds of your fathers, for they killed them, and you build their tombs. As he went away from there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard and to provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him to catch him in something he might say. This is the word of the Lord. We are going through a series, uh, through the Gospel of Luke, not the entire Gospel, but we're looking at specific instances in which Jesus has a meal with people. And one of the things that we've been seeing in the meals that have taken place so far is Uh, When Jesus has a meal, oftentimes there's an important teaching that accompanies it. But uh, I don't know if you got the feeling after, uh, as I was reading today's passage, uh, today's passage feels a little bit different than the previous passages that we've looked at, mainly because of its tone. Uh, The tone here is pretty harsh. Jesus says some pretty harsh things to the Pharisees and the lawyers, and things start to get uh, very, very confrontational. And the confrontation, it starts here when Jesus, he reclines at table and he doesn't, essentially, he doesn't wash his hands before eating. And the Pharisees, they're astonished, but they're not uh, astonished because they're so concerned with things like personal hygiene, but they're really shocked with the fact that Jesus didn't wash his hands because that's something that was understood in order to maintain ritual purity. Uh, The Pharisees, uh, they see Jesus not washing his hands. And uh, maybe the way we we, uh, handle it is uh, we want to avoid that kind of discomfort and we don't like confrontation and we don't like tension. And so maybe some of us tend to act in a kind of passive aggressive way or we try to circumvent the, the source of tension rather than bring it to the surface. But Jesus is not like that. Uh, Jesus has no interest in circumventing the source of tension, but he wants to bring it to the forefront. He doesn't care if people think he's being rude because he sees something that is very wrong with these Pharisees and very wrong with these lawyers, and he wants it to be clear that what they represent is not ultimately what God desires of his people. And so he rebukes them. He rebukes them for their greed, their lack of compassion, and for their destructive ways. And a lot of times, it's, it's through confrontation. It's when there is confrontation that we learn the most about people. When we learn the most about what's important to them and what they desire, uh, we learn so much about what they're really passionate about. And I think similarly here, in this confrontation, in this meal, we learn a lot about what's actually important to Jesus and what he cares about. So what do we learn? Well, first, we learn very clearly what Jesus despises. I might even say we learn very clearly about what Jesus hates. See, Jesus makes a negative evaluation of the Pharisees and lawyers, and we have to ask why he does that. Now, the fact that Jesus makes this negative evaluation is pretty significant considering the fact that Jesus appeared to be more gracious to people like tax collectors and sinners and prostitutes. So what is it about these Pharisees and lawyers that Jesus really despised? And we find a clue in verse 39 when Jesus says, Now you Pharisees, cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. And I think what Jesus is calling them out on is the fact that they present themselves in a certain way externally, but it contradicts who they really are internally. And there's a word for that, and the word for that is hypocrisy. Hypocrisy. Jesus hates hypocrisy. He has a major problem with hypocrisy. And the illustration that he uses here is he describes that of a dirty cup or a dirty dish, one that is externally clean but is not truly clean. Uh, ima- imagine you go to a restaurant one day and you order coffee and they serve you uh, coffee in a mug. And as you're sitting there from your vantage point, you look at the mug and on the outside it looks pretty clean. right? So the assumption is the cup is clean and it's filled with coffee and uh, you take that mug of coffee, you begin to drink it, and as you drink it, and as the coffee uh, goes down, you begin to see nasty stuff in there, right? You begin to see uh, old food that hasn't been washed out. You begin to see all the stuff that doesn't belong in this mug, and of course, you're disgusted. Now, if you were a uh, patron of that restaurant, what would you prefer? Would you prefer to see a mug that was both dirty on the outside and on the inside, Or would you prefer to see a mug that was clean on the outside but really dirty on the inside? I think many of us would say we we would rather see the mug dirty on the outside. Why? Because then we can at least do something about it. We can send it back. We can say, hey, this mug is not clean. We can recognize it. We can recognize that we shouldn't drink from it because the inside is not clean. And I think in a similar way, uh, that's, that's the illustration that Jesus is using here. He's saying hypocrisy is ultimately just trying to be clean on the outside. But on the inside, things are all messed up. Things are nerdy. Hypocrisy is uh, ultimately deceptive, and uh, it leads to this counterfeit form of righteousness and purity. Now, most of us would probably agree, hypocrisy is bad, right? Um, I've never met anybody who aspired to be a hypocrite, but I've met plenty of people who did not recognize or see their own hypocrisy. Hypocrisy. Uh, People oftentimes may seek counseling when it comes to issues related to anger, issues related to lust, issues related to addiction. But I've never seen anybody seek counseling uh, for issues related to their own hypocrisy. It's just something that we don't see in ourselves or it's just something that we are in denial of. Hypocrites are often blind to their hypocrisy. And do you know why? It's because it defeats the goal of hypocrisy a hypocrite seeks to conceal inner sin inner dirtiness inner issues and in order to admit that hypocrisy is a problem you're you're bringing that out into the open right it contradicts what a hypocrite is ultimately trying to do and that's why we don't often see our own hypocrisy because if we do and if we did we would uh probably try to seek help for it or seek counsel for it seek accountability for it and by doing so it would cease to make us hypocrites anymore. because we're taking what's inside and finally bringing it out see the nature of hypocrisy is to keep our sin our dirtiness our issues hidden Um, do you know what method acting is method acting as i understand it it's when uh, an actor embodies a character so much to the point where they actually become that character Uh, one of the famous method actors is daniel day lewis and uh, i heard when he played abraham lincoln Uh, He stayed in character throughout the entire time. And uh, there was this interview I read with Sally Field, and uh, they were talking to her about the making of the movie, and Sally Field said, I never met Daniel Day-Lewis. I only met Abraham Lincoln. And uh, that's such a strange thing. But even off camera, she would say, you know, he would still continue to be Abraham Lincoln. And uh, when they texted each other on the phone, uh, he texted as Abraham Lincoln. And she said, it was such a strange experience. But it was was a good experience for her. And, uh, you know, sometimes maybe we can't see our own hypocrisy because we're all method actors. Uh, We're so committed to playing a part that eventually we believe that we are that part that we are playing. And maybe the part that we're playing is we're a morally good person who always does the right thing. Maybe the part that we're playing is we're somebody who has it all together all the time. Maybe the part that we're playing is we are smart and successful, but maybe inside we are not really that person. And maybe what we're doing is we're concealing this dirtiness. We're concealing our true self. We're concealing it uh, not just from other people, but maybe we're even concealing it from ourselves as well. You know, I know when people really mess up and kind of sin big, um, usually in the context of being unfaithful to their spouse, uh, they always say things like, you know, I never thought, I was capable of that. I never thought I could do that. I didn't know uh, that was inside of me. Or other people would say, I am shocked that this person could do something like that or was capable of something like that. And I think that shock and surprise comes to us because just as Sally Field never met Daniel Day-Lewis, perhaps we've never met the person uh, who is capable of such things. We've hidden it. Now, as a society... We don't like hypocrisy, but maybe we don't think it's all that bad and it's all that destructive. Uh, After all, I think it was Shakespeare who said, all the world is a stage. And I think the implication is we're all playing a part on this stage. We're all actors in this stage. But you know in the Bible, one of the most destructive sins, spiritually, personally, relationally, and even missionally, I think is hypocrisy. Because at the root of hypocrisy is this... Self-righteous legalism that dwells within our hearts. Now, What is legalism? Uh, legalism is basically this approach to life that says, unless you are able to meet this, this standard that uh, maybe I set for myself or I set for other people, then uh, the person, either I or other people, is not worthy of whatever definition of salvation uh, we, we have. I think hypocrisy is basically trying to give an appearance that uh, I meet this standard uh, when deep in our hearts uh, we betray it and we fall short of it. Uh, I I think legalism is actually easier to understand than grace because most of the world operates on legalistic principles. Most of the world says you have to meet a certain standard. uh, You have to aspire to a certain standard. Uh, If you've ever tried to explain grace to somebody who wasn't familiar with Christianity or the gospel, uh, at least in my experience, it, it's been difficult to kind of explain. Uh, what's easier to explain is legalism. But legalism is, is just so dangerous and destructive. And uh, rather than explain it, I, I want to try to show it and show why it's destructive. You know, I read this uh, story of a woman in a journal article this week, and uh, I want to tell you her story. This is probably a pseudonym, uh, because I don't think a journal <laughs> would publish the real identity or real person or real name, but uh, this is this is the story of this woman named Karen. Uh, Karen was a 26-year-old single woman, and she was somebody that struggled with deep depression. And she came from a nominal Christian family, which means she came from a family that identified themselves as Christian, but they weren't really devout, they didn't really practice. And one of her vivid memories as a child is... Uh, you know, it was of her father, and her father was a heavy drinker, and what she remembers as a child is her father hitting her until that she cried, Daddy, I'm bad, I'm bad. And after she confessed that and after she cried that, her dad stopped hitting her. Now, she eventually professed faith in high school, and throughout college, uh, she lived a very uh, high moral, a life with very high moral standards, Uh, That was influenced by her Christian faith. And after college, she started working a job, and during her time of employment, her immediate supervisor started engaging in illegal practices, which she also participated in. And when this was discovered by the higher-ups, she was fired along with her immediate supervisor, and that ended up being the catalyst into her spiraling into this deep, deep depression. Hmm. Now, she was depressed bec- for a lot of reasons. She was depressed because she felt like a failure. She violated her high moral standards. She's also filled with a lot of anger at her employer for firing her. And so, what she decided to do, she decided to see a psychiatrist, and the psychiatrist prescribed her antidepressants. And she went to therapy for many, many months. And at therapy, what the psychiatrist uh, did was she, he tried to work to develop something called transference. Now, I'm not familiar with, like, psychiatric methodology, but uh, I guess maybe it's a, it's a method that therapists use. And uh, I think it's, it's a technique. Um, like, basically, the psychiatrist, he, he believed that transference would allow him to, to reparent Karen by mirroring her exhibitionistic self, Right, that's a quote from the article. I don't know what that means. But it was meant to uh, empower her, okay? Now, it didn't work, okay? Transference, it didn't work, and she considered uh, her psychiatrist to be unhelpful and overrated. And then she reached out to people in her church. She, The people in her church said, you know, you should join this group for people who are going through stuff and who are depressed, And she said, you know, I tried that, and it didn't work. And then other people in church said, you know, it's spiritual warfare. You need to pray more. She said, I tried that, but it didn't work. And nothing that anybody said really helped her. And so soon she got very angry. Uh, She got angry at her psychiatrist because he could not help her. She got angry at her church because they disappointed her. They failed to understand her and what she was going through. Now the question for us is, how do we understand and interpret Karen? How do we interpret her story? Well, starting at a very young age, she lived according to a law. And at first, this law was to please her father. When she pleased her father, she felt good. When she failed her father, she atoned for it by confessing that she was bad. As she began to get older, she lived by this high moral standard influenced by her Christian faith. And she felt good when she was able to maintain and keep those moral standards. But when she failed it, she fell into a deep depression. And in a way, her depression uh, was a way of atonement because uh, probably deep down she felt like she deserved to feel bad. She deserved to feel horrible. Uh, And it was maybe kind of a punishment that she felt like she deserved for her failure. Not only that, but she held other people to this law, to this standard. And if people couldn't help her, if people didn't care enough about her, if people couldn't love her or understand her or meet her expectations, she was angry with them. She was disappointed with them. And she tried to make them atone for their failure by keeping them distant, by criticizing them. Now, it would be very easy to interpret her life and her problems as being entirely external, right? Uh, We could say her life is messed up obviously because of her father, which, of course, was probably a part of it. She's depressed because she was fired from her job. She just didn't go to the right church, and she didn't meet the right people who could understand her. Uh, She just didn't meet the right psychiatrist. And we could say all of these things were ultimately her issue, but maybe those things are just merely addressing the external things and doesn't really get to the heart of the matter. It doesn't get to the inside of the cup. What's going inside of her and how can we interpret her life and her story? I think we could say this. She's a legalist. She's a legalist. She's created a law and when she has not been able to keep it, she spirals down into depression. When she can keep it, she has self-esteem, she feels good about herself. When others keep it, She rewards them with relationship and care and love. When others fail to keep it, she gets angry. Now her life on the outside looks very different from the Pharisees and the lawyers that we read here. But guess what? They share the same heart. They have the same heart. When they wash their hands and when they tithe, they feel good. When others fail to do it, they get angry. And from their vantage point, Jesus failed to do that which was required, and they get angry at him. Now, what does Jesus say to hypocritical, self-righteous legalists? He says this, woe to you. (laughs) Woe to you. Why was Jesus so gracious to tax collectors and sinners? Why was Jesus so gracious to prostitutes what makes them different what sets them apart from these pharisees and these lawyers and it says they knew they knew that they were dirty on the inside because everybody saw it on the outside to them there was no making things better to them there was no penance that they could pay there was no false pretense there is no pretending there's no acting there is no hypocrisy all they knew is that they were broken that they were needy That they were dirty, both on the inside and on the outside. And therefore, they knew that they needed Jesus. That's really where you have to be. That's really where we all have to be. If Jesus is going to have any kind of significant meaning or impact in our lives, we have to be there. We have to recognize that. If you were climbing a mountain and your rope suddenly broke, you find yourself in a desperate situation, if your friend comes to you and rescues you and carries you up that mountain on his or her own strength, that friend means something to you, right? They saved you. But if you climb that mountain on your own strength and your friend kind of just gives you inspirational quotes like, you can do it, right? this is how you do it. Let me teach you how to do it. Let me teach you how to climb up this mountain. Your friend doesn't mean as much to you because you're doing all the work, right? For some of us, maybe Jesus is more like that person who's just saying these inspirational things and teaching us and showing us and telling us what to do. And maybe he's not really the person that carries us on his back and rescues us up this mountain. And if that is the case, that's probably why we don't have an amazing experience or relationship with the person of Christ, that's probably why grace doesn't mean as much to us as it ought. Because we're still doing it ourselves. You know what the problem is with uh, climbing up a mountain on our own strength? At least spiritually speaking, we can't do it. We can't do it. You know, legalism, I think, is, is actually an easier way to live than uh, a system of grace because under legalism we can achieve not only that but legalism it sets limits there is a limit to what we are called to do think about this A, a christian right if you are a believer maybe you struggle with the fact that uh you say am i am i praying enough I always, I don't feel like I'm praying enough. Am I praying enough? How, how many times, how long, how many hours do I really need to pray for it to be enough? But you know a Muslim doesn't struggle with that because a Muslim knows how many times they're supposed to pray. They pray five times a day. There's a limit. It's easier to say, well, if I reach this limit, then it's enough. Whereas under a system of grace, you can always do more, right? Christians, though, can turn Christianity into a legalistic system, and I think it's very easy to do that. Uh, a few months ago, I was in Las Vegas, <laughs> I had a, had a little debate with uh, some friends of mine about tithing. And uh, if you're not familiar with what tithing is, it's basically the principle that you give 10% of your earnings to the church. And they were, they were arguing that you know, all Christians should be taught to give 10% uh, tithe as a minimum requirement to the church and i disagreed with that i said no I don't, I don't think that's right and i said you know jesus mentions tithing a handful of times in the gospel i think 3 times maybe in in the gospels and every time he talks about tithing he talks about it in a negative way this passage is actually one of those instances where jesus mentions tithing the pharisees they tithed their income but they were still greedy and wicked on the inside they still didn't care about the poor And uh, as I was talking to my friends, I said to them, you know, the New Testament principle, I think, is you live your life out of grace, not out of law anymore, not to say that the law is bad. If you say 10% is required of you, then what happens? We we only give 10%, and it puts a limit to our obedience, puts a limit to our love, puts a limit to our sacrifice and our generosity. It's kind of like telling a husband, if you want to be a good husband, and I've used this illustration in the past, if you want to be a good husband, make sure you don't abuse your wife and make sure every birthday and anniversary you get her a present. Then you'll be a good husband. And if you're married and if you're a wife, you're probably thinking, no, you got to do more than that, right? That's not enough. That's not enough to communicate that you actually love me and care about me. Uh, you can't set limits to love. What should a husband do well husband should do that maybe also clean the house and do the dishes and clean the toilets maybe it also means taking her out on dates listening to how her day went and on and on there there is no limit to that love and that's a lot harder isn't it it's a lot harder when you say love is required of you there is no limit to how much you're called to give that means In order to love, 10% may not be enough. 20% may not be enough. 30 40% may not be enough. Grace means there is no limit to your generosity because there is no limit to love. If you say, well, I help out at a homeless shelter once a month, so I have done my duty, then you'd limit your love for the poor, right? But love calls us to do more than that. And I think when we understand that standard of love, Here's what we understand. We fall short of it all the time. We fall short. And then I think our hearts are ready to hear and to receive the gospel. The system of grace, uh, do you know why there is no limit to what we can give God with respect to our time, with respect to our energy, with respect to our money? It's because God did not limit his love for us. Think about that. God did not limit his love for us. I think God could have easily said, look, I gave these people a chance. I gave them all these trees in the garden. I just told them, don't eat from this one tree. But I said, you could eat from all of these other trees. They couldn't even do that. I've done my job, right? I've I've given them all that I could give them. What more do I have to do? And of course, the answer is nothing. God didn't have to do any more. But God did do more out of love. God gave himself wholly and completely. He didn't give a tenth of himself. He didn't give 20, 30, 40, 50% of himself. God gave 100% of himself in the person of Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ went to the cross, and on that cross he demonstrated a great act of not just sacrifice, but he demonstrated a great act of love, love for his people. He gave us everything that is meaningful and significant and good. And he gave it up himself so that we could have it. And in that act, God went beyond the limits of what he was required to do. And in that act, we see the beauty of his love. What did the Pharisees do? By contrast, look at verse 42. They tithed, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. They neglected justice and the love of God. You don't need love in a system of legalism, but you can't have a system of grace without love. You can meet all these standards without love, but you can't show grace to people without love. You see, the Pharisees and lawyers, they neglected that, and that's why Jesus pronounces woe upon them. They thought they were good. They thought they did their duty, but they fell far short of Jesus' standard for them of love. Question for us, how then should we respond to God's love? How do we respond to the cross? Legalism calls for penance. It says if we fail, we have to atone for it. We have to make things right. We have to inflict punishment. For some of us, maybe our uh, depression, our self-destructiveness, maybe that that's a way of self-atonement. It's saying, I fell short. I don't deserve. I'm not worthy. Maybe isolating ourselves and kind of saying, ah, I don't deserve uh, community and friends. And we kind of just put ourselves in our, our room and don't talk to anybody. Maybe that's a way of atonement. Maybe that's a way of penance because we feel like we fell short. Maybe you're the kind of legalist that you have a standard, but you hold other people to that standard. And what's the penance there? Well, I got to criticize this person. This person <laughs> needs to know where they're wrong. I I need to withhold my love and care and compassion and my time for this person because this person just disappointed me. You know what the gospel calls for? It doesn't call for penance. The gospel calls us to repentance. Repentance. What is repentance? Well, repentance is not about focusing on how we failed Jesus and spending all these hours crying about it, and maybe that's how we grew up thinking what repentance was. Maybe that's a part of it, but that's not the entirety of it. If that's what we think, then maybe our understanding of repentance is more like penance, and we're still stuck in that legalistic mindset. Now, you see, repentance is a change of direction. It is a change in where you ultimately put your trust. It is a turning away from our sin. It is a turning away from relying upon our strength, ourselves, And it is a turning to Jesus and relying upon Him and resting in Him. You know, if all you do is focus on your failure and feel bad about it, that's penance. But if you remember what Jesus Christ has done for you, and if you receive that grace, and if you trust in Him, and if you trust in the fact that He loves you, that He has accepted you, that in Him you are made new and beautiful and righteous, and you find peace from your anxieties, if that anger begins to subside, if you find true rest, friends, that's that's repentance. That's repentance. I think it, every one of us is probably legalistic in our hearts. That's probably our default nature, and it's something that we have to fight and repent of, and continually turn to Jesus of. But let me also say this: you know, in my experience, uh, the most legalistic people um, never see their own legalism. <laughs> they, they're they overly critical of this person and that person, but they never think that they their heart is the, the issue. So if, if we're blind to our own legalistic heart, uh, how do we recognize if we're legalists? I'll say this. I think you can recognize it by its fruit. I've already mentioned this. Are you uh, very critical of others, and do you tear other people down? You're probably a legalist. Do, you, uh, do, you, th- do your failures destroy you? And if you don't meet your standard of what you think uh, you ought to meet, do you spiral into a depression? You're probably a legalist. Do you have a lot of anxiety about life? You're probably a legalist. And you know, I've heard I've heard this come up a lot recently, so maybe this is like uh, what our congregation is going through. Uh, if you're going through a midlife crisis and you're saying, "What what have I done with my life up to this point?" You might be a legalist. Maybe you created a law. And maybe you failed to submit to the ultimate lawgiver. And in your failure to submit Maybe you fail to receive the grace that he offers, the love that he gives, the forgiveness that is freely bestowed to us from the only one whose judgment really matters. Here's what Jesus offers you in the Gospel. For those of you who know that you need him, for those of you who know that inside you are dirty, and you're not just trying to cover it up by keeping a clean outside. Jesus offers to turn this proclamation of curse, this proclamation of woe into proclamation of blessing. And he says, "I will bless you." But here's the thing. You have to come to me like a tax collector. You have to come to me like a sinner. You have to come to me like a prostitute. You have to come to me knowing that you are on the side of that mountain and you can't lift yourself up. You have to rid yourself of your hypocrisy, of your self-righteousness, and you have to come to me desperate, broken, and needy. And when we do that, that's where blessing is. That's where freedom is. That's where joy is. Let's pray together.